Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat Podcast. We are Solution Architects and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we dive deep, demystify technology and talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and Deep Tech Dive in Topic of Hello, my name is Shane Baldacino, and this is episode 73 of the AWS Tech Chat podcast. And for today's show, I welcome back after a long hiatus, Dean Samuels. And it's great to be back, Shane. Indeed, it has been a very long hiatus, uh, but I must be truthful. I have been a continual listener over all this time. Uh, it's been a great learning experience, actually, to listen over the last few years to yourself, you know, Dr. P, Gabe, and others on this podcast. It's amazing that we're already at uh, 73 uh, episodes. I can actually still remember when Dr. P came up with this concept and launched the first show back in 2016. And we've definitely come a long way from that. And, and I know now you've taken on the reins superbly, uh, Shane, and uh, I look forward to you taking it to the next level, uh, especially based on all the feedback we're getting from our listeners. Exactly. All right. So there may be a pop quiz on this continual listener part, Dean, later on. But look, <laughs> actually, that is a good point to remind you all listeners. Look, we really do read all the feedback. So please keep the feedback coming. Um, you know, it's great to receive messages on, you know, what you'd like to see in future shows. Drive a direction, AWS Tech Chat at Amazon.com. So, Dean, good to have you here. You are the best wingman for this show. I love these, you know, infrastructure uh, you know, technologies and having you here. So, in this episode of Tech Chat, we're going to go right to the coalface of what is AWS, you know, our edge services, and focus on the services that users, and I mean end users, directly interface when accessing the solutions and stacks that you build on AWS. We haven't touched on these before on the show, and apart from forcing myself to dive deeper into these, they are what you could say unsung heroes. They just need to work, and they need to work all of the time. Absolutely. It's a great topic to cover, Shane, and I'm sure it's probably nothing to do with your new role, right? Uh, and uh, for those who are not familiar, Shane is actually our new edge specialist uh, SA uh, for those not in the know. Um, so congratulations on the new role, Shane, and I look forward to uh, um, all the things that you do produce in the future. But, uh, you know, getting back to the edge services topic, um, the edge services has evolved quite significantly at AWS over the last 10 years. And now I've been here uh, nine years and it actually feels like I've grown up very closely with these services too. So it's a great opportunity to be able to talk in more detail about these edge services. Correct. And as you stated, yes, that is my new role. I'm a new edge specialist SA. So look, drop us an email, awstechchat at amazon.com. If you have any questions, uh, you know, edge related, feel free to send them through. But as we always do before we jump into the show today, let's do a quick lap of the news around AWS. Now, since our last episode in which I spoke about with Mitch, a raft of online events that have transpired in our region of the world, things are changing on a near daily basis. Summit Wise listeners, check the events page for updates on our Global Summit series. Some have been rescheduled, some have been cancelled, so please check the event pages as, as I mentioned, things do change frequently. Just search AWS events in your favorite search engine. Yeah, the next summit we actually have scheduled is the Public Sector Summit chain. It's actually in Australia, and that will be on uh, September 2nd. It's still maybe a long way away, but I'm sure it's going to arrive here in no time. 
Uh, now, listeners, remember there is actually a raft of consumable content available online. We make these uh, summits uh, on demand uh, if you aren't able to make it on the day. Um, there are actually tech talks uh, that are available on demand from everything covering relational database systems, uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning, monitoring, management, through to cost optimization, as well as a lot of scheduled webinars as well. Yeah, look, lots of content for you to consume at home. You know, it's maybe a great opportunity, you know, to really, you know, uh, hone in on your skills around AWS. Speaking of the comfort of your home, talk to me, Dean, about the setup you have at home. <laughs> well, technically, Shane, I actually don't have a home at the moment. Uh, I wouldn't class myself as homeless, but uh, actually what's happening right now is I'm a transient uh, person in that uh, I'm actually supposed to be based in Singapore, but currently I'm working in Sydney and, and due to current travel restrictions, uh, I have actually have been in Sydney for the last few months. And, and what that's actually meant, Shane, is uh, in order for me to contribute to some of these summits and uh, webinars and uh, other online events that we've spoken about, um, I've actually had to come up with a, a mobile studio kit, uh, which has been quite uh, interesting to, to create over the last uh, few months. Um, so essentially, I've got all my gear that can be packed up in a matter of minutes and bundled with 4G or 5G technology, I can actually essentially work from uh, anywhere. Um, I quite, actually quite like the lifestyle. I just have to try and convince my wife if she's up, up for that transient lifestyle as well. Uh, I guess that means, though, Shane, uh, is there any internet connectivity like from Antarctica? Um, or do I have to wait for SpaceX's Starlink to be up and running before I can maybe um, be mobile to Antarctica? Who knows? Or you could build your own satellite communications network with AWS Ground Station. But perhaps that's a topic for a future podcast. Today, it's going to be all about edge services. So news done. Dean, let's talk about Edge. More so, what is Edge and how I like to describe it is are the services that are responsible for moving bits to your consumers and getting those requests to your compute platform. Yeah, that's right, Shane. It's really all about that technology that acts as a gateway to your services. But the question would be, what is the difference between Edge services and then Edge computing? Well, look, edge services is a concept that's been around for quite some time, you know, essentially allowing you to more effectively and efficiently deliver content to your global distributed end users. Traditionally, edge services encompass, you know, DNS and CDNs, more on those later. But edge services have now evolved and are encompassing things like edge computing. You know, they're kind of, you know, melding together, you know, a distributed computing paradigm that brings computation, including machine learning, inference and data storage processing and analysis closer to the location where it's needed in order to improve the response times and save bandwidth. Yeah, it's definitely evolved quite significantly over the last few years, uh, edge services and now edge computing. Uh, I actually remember back in the day, you know, just for fun, I used to deploy reverse proxies in various AWS regions around the globe that would be the front end to my web servers sitting in a particular region. Uh, I would actually then use a DNS provider to direct end users to one of those reverse proxies based on where the user was located. So all access to the, my web servers would be via one of those reverse proxies. Those reverse proxies would actually cache, uh, cache a lot of that static content, therefore delivering an optimal user experience. So does that mean, Shane, that I've essentially built out an edge services infrastructure myself? Uh, sure there, Dean. But look, edge services is more than just caching, you know? Were you running Squid by any chance? Was that what you were doing? I was indeed. Squid and bind. Squid as my squid and bind as my DNS. Far out. That brings back memories. Maybe not so much on the squid point of view, but bind. And yeah. when you 
have your bind configuration, your conf file, slightly wrong. Nothing loads up and your DNS server falls over. But yeah, it's like those JSON files with CloudFormation, right? With the Kelly mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Um, and look, yes, that was its original design, but Edge services are used for a variety of use cases in terms of security. You know, who wants to expose their servers directly to the internet? You know, I definitely know I don't want to do that. You know, performance, you know, the speed of light is a speed of light after all. So, you know, and resiliency. Internet services require internet scalable architectures and you also need to build out infrastructure that will allow users to connect to your service in the first place. And by the way, Dean, I think you have too much time on your hands to be building your own edge services infrastructure. Yeah, I understand that now and I know we will cover some of the services from AWS that uh, uh, doesn't require me now to build those uh, uh, services myself. But, you know, there's nothing uh, like hands-on experience to really understand uh, concepts. And Shane, you actually mentioned the security aspect, which I think is really important. It really is the core foundation of why you'd be looking at um, these uh, edge-type services because then it has a flow-on effect to the resiliency performance and other areas of um, uh, uh, sustainability with these uh, web services that you provide. Um, When we talk about best practices for internet-facing applications, uh, we talk about not exposing your applications directly to the internet and using edge services um, to actually uh, provide that front end. Um, If you were to expose your applications directly to the internet, you then uh, potentially leave your application prone to disruption through things like uh, denial of service attacks, scanning, and even just perhaps the inability to scale fast enough to support sudden bursts of traffic. And so that can actually lead to potential performance and resiliency issues too. Yeah. Absolutely. I remember back in the days, I don't know how uh, modern operating systems deal with this, but, you know, Windows Server 2000, IS5, etc. you know, place one of those machines directly on the internet with, you know, no form of packet filtering or anything like that. And, you know, you probably wouldn't have control of that machine for too long. Dean, there is so much to talk about and perhaps, you know, we'll break this down into multiple shows, but I want to cover a raft of ADOS services and concepts. But in order to do this, we really need to start from the beginning. So let's start with DNS or domain name system. And I often hear the analogy to explain DNS is that, you know, it serves as a phone book for the internet by translating human-friendly computer host names into IP addresses. Uh, What's a phone book, Shane? I know, I know you're not that young, but to know what a phone book is, Dean. But look, for those listeners who may not know what a phone book is, think of it like their phone contacts instead. You know, it's a way to map out a more human-friendly string of characters like the name of a person or company to a number which is used to contact that said person or company, i.e. much easier for humans to remember words than numbers. So like your phone contact maps your friends' names to their numbers, DNS is going to translate those human-friendly domain names, you know, www.amazon.com into an IP address. For example... Amazon.com translate to a series of IP addresses and one of those IP addresses will be used by your web client to connect to the Amazon.com website. DNS can quickly and transparently be updated, allowing you know, the services location on the network to change without affecting the end users who will continue to use the same host name. And that's really important. So when you're sitting at home and enter in a URL, you know, if your favorite website or email someone, you don't need to know the IP address or the server providing the service. This is the core function of DNS. And an important and ubiquitous function of DNS 
is its central role in the distributed internet services and CDN. So when a user accesses distributed internet services using a URL, the domain name of the URL is translated to the IP address of a server that is proximal to the user. So I could go on and on here, Dean, but let's get to the nuts and bolts of how DNS works. And this is often an interview question I ask potential Amazonians. You know, people often think it's magic, but what happens when I'm sitting at my home and I type in amazon.com into my browser? Uh, so are you asking me, Shane? I am actually, and I'm expecting an RFC textbook answer here. You show you up for it, Dean? Uh, I hope I'm up for it. Uh, let me give it a shot because I was actually asked this very question when I interviewed for a role at AWS all those nine years ago. Perfect. Uh, okay. Yeah. So let's let's uh, let's set the scene, right? So I'm uh, sitting in front of my uh, laptop, or more than likely, maybe on my mobile phone, um, and I want to access uh, Amazon.com because I want to purchase the next greatest thing that we have on offer there. So I'll enter. Um, a uh, Amazon.com URL um, or domain name in my browser or in my mobile um, my mobile browser, and so what's actually going to happen there, Shane, is the device itself after I hit enter is going to check my local DNS cache on the uh, mobile device. Now, in a Linux system, for example, um, if it was an operating system that I was using or a Mac OS X, um, there'd be something like a hosts file, uh, which uh, potentially could contain that mapping. Traditionally, it won't, though, because, as you mentioned before, um, the power of DNS services is that you can make underlying changes um, to the network infrastructure without actually needing to um, uh, make changes to the front end. So what the browser will do is check those local cache and the local host file. If it doesn't have a, uh, a mapping of that friendly Amazon.com name to IP address, um, it will then actually uh, look at a DNS server or a DNS resolver. Um, that can actually provide that mapping. And the way that uh, the DNS resolver is determined is either through the DHCP information that was provided to the device when they're connected to the network. Not only is the device allocated an IP address, but it's also given a uh, gateway that it can connect to for most of its uh, connections outside of the local network, and also a set of DNS uh, resolvers or DNS uh, servers that uh, the device can connect directly through when it wants to request a, a, a mapping. So let's say my device um, now connects to that DNS resolver. The DNS resolver will take the amazon.com uh, name. It will actually uh, pass the last suffix of that domain. So basically the .com, which is known as a top level uh, domain. Um, so what will then happen is the DNS resolver will send that request to uh, essentially a top level domain name server, maybe even some root servers. Um, on the internet. And so essentially what that root server is going to do is it's going to indicate what is the name server for the .com top level domain. And then that request will be then forwarded on to that uh, top level domain name server, which will then now have a mapping of amazon.com. Um, what is the name server for the amazon.com domain? That in turn will forward the request um, to the name server for amazon.com. And that is the name server who will have the authority to provide the mapping of DNS name amazon.com to a series of IP addresses. It will then basically send the request transitioning through those um, uh, uh, stages 
back to the DNS resolver, and then therefore back to the device uh, itself. Now, um, that was a, that probably wasn't the RFC-specific uh, detail, Shane, because there is some caching that can take place uh, in that uh, process as well, where one of those name servers may already have the mapping, so it doesn't need to do that full lookup. Um, but essentially, once I get that IP address back um, from the resolution, my device can now then connect directly to the uh, Amazon.com um, uh, website using that IP address that was provided and using the routing information that has also been given to my device through the DHCP or static um, uh, uh, information that has been assigned. Um, so how did I go, Shane? Do I uh, get the role? I think I'm going to have to give it to you. Look, not an RFC textbook response, but, you know, bag on there, Dean. And I just have to say, listeners, look, DNS is so important to understand. So, look, if you're starting off in IT, you know, you've just graduated or, you know, you're beginning in your journey here, maybe you're a developer using connection strings, a container orchestration platform, everything these days is dynamic. You know, no one is hard coding, host files, etc. DNS is one of those disciplines you need to get a good grounding on. Now, look, I think we could probably spend the whole show talking about DNS. I know I could. Look, there are over 32 different record types types that can be defined in a zone. So Dean mentioned, you know, returning a record before. That would be an A record. We'll get into that shortly. But look, many of these record types have been deprecated. You know, unless you're using some specialized software, many of these may never see the light of day. But Dean, I want to cover the main ones here. And I think quickly, just, you know, what better way to get this is to look at my own personal zone file. So I had a look at my own personal zone file, boldashino.net. There's not much to look at there. Don't worry, no website. Um, I use it purely for email. And look, the main records as I look through my zone are, you know, so we've got A records. So these are going to provide those name to IP resolution, e.g. boldashino.net through to an IP address. But then we also have C names or canical names. Um, you know, an example of that, a perfect one is say www. You, you probably aren't going to have a separate record for www pointing to the same, or pointing to the same IP address as your root record. So rather than having an A record for www dot, you can just have a C name, which is kind of like a pointer, which will point to a given A record. Now the other one that's you know really quite common is an MX record or mail exchanger record. Now these specify the mail servers that are responsible for accepting email messages on behalf of the domain name. Now it's possible to configure several MX records and typically that's what people do. Um, so you'll point to an array of mail servers for load balancing but mainly for redundancy. So in my own domain name I have multiple MX records and with MX records you specify an integer value associated with that record. So the lowest uh, number, the number with the lowest priority or number is tried first. So, you know, it'll try this mail server first. If it can't, you know, won't receive email on port 25, it'll go to the next one and so on. Moving on, there is something called a statement of authority or an SOA. And these define parameters around the zone, such as caching intervals. So like the time to live, the refresh um, and so on. So pretty important. Dean mentioned name servers before for Amazon.com. So there are two or, you know, typically two, at least two name server records in a zone which define the authority of name servers for a zone. So back to Dean's description earlier, these hold the copies of the zone file itself inside your DNS server. And lastly, the last one I want to cover is TXT records. So they are used for, for various services from Active Directory, domain name validation these days with various SaaS services, and anti-spam technologies. 
And that's where I cut my teeth on SPF records. That was with DKIM or Domain Keys and SPF Sender Policy Framework. So Shane, this is actually the example of where DNS is not simply providing a name to an IP address. DNS is actually providing a name to a different set of attributes, just like your phone contact hmm. analogy where your friend's name not, might not just be to a, their um, uh, phone number, it could also be their email address, their address, and other attributes for that, uh, for that uh, friend. So you have you know, A records, C names, MX records, uh, uh, and so on, all these different record types, which actually actually maps back to that, in our example, Amazon.com domain name. Yeah, for sure. So look, Dean, that was DNS in a nutshell. And at AWS, we have Route 53. Tell us about it. Yeah, so Route 53 is uh, definitely one of my more favorite uh, services. Uh, uh, it's essentially a highly available and scalable um, cloud domain name system. Uh, essentially, it's designed to give developers and businesses an extremely reliable and cost-effective way to perform DNS. And actually, as a fun note, Shane, um, Amazon Route 53 is fully compliant with IPv6 as well. You know, I still haven't got my head fully around IPv6. You know, you see these t-shirts that say there is no place like 127.001 home. Mm-hmm. You know, I still haven't memorized what is what's the local host in IPv6. Do you know? Um, I'm sure we'll, 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 we'll look it up for the next uh, podcast. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Maybe we'll get a T-shirt printed with it. Um, so, Dean, look, what would you say differentiates Route 53 from your standard Windows DNS or Bind DNS server? Uh, so Route 53 is a DNS uh, service, uh, as, was, as was mentioned. Um, it is a, a fully compliant DNS uh, uh, service as well, so it can be used in collaboration with other DNS um, uh, services as well on the internet. Um, essentially, uh, it does have the standard DNS uh, uh, resolutions, but it provides so much more. Um, so essentially, you have, for example, these um, canonic, uh, canonical names or C names like you mentioned before, Shane, and these can be known as what's called a zone apex. And essentially something, for example, like Amazon.com, which could be a zone apex, you can actually point Amazon.com directly to a a range of maybe uh, uh, load balances, or if you had your own domain name, that's going to be the zone apex. You can even point it directly to things things like S3 buckets, where where you're going to use S3 maybe as your static website. Yeah. Um, You know, when I first started off in AWS as a consumer, you know, the concept of load balancers having their IP address change, I was thinking to myself, you know, how can you have, um, you know, your website point directly to a load balancer? And, you know, and that's where this function of Route 53 comes into place. The ability, because in a typical DNS server, bind, etc., you cannot have a C name as your zone apex, you know, and that's really great. It's a great way to have a cheap, cost-effective website. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a great feature to have because it is a common problem, like you mentioned, where customers do want to use a zone apex, for example, like Amazon.com. And so rather than pointing www.amazon.com to load balancers, which can which you can, of course, uh, do, but you want your zone apex, Amazon.com, to also point directly to your load balancers or even your uh, cl- uh, your DNS, uh, sorry, your, your CloudFront uh, distributions uh, as well, and also S3 buckets, like we mentioned, for effective web so- uh, static website hosting. Uh, one other key uh, feature of uh, Route 53, Shane, is that it actually does provide 100% uptime. It's actually the only AWS service to provide a 100% uh, SLA. 
Yeah, and that's a really big call, like 100%. We're not talking, you know, three nines, five nines, et cetera, 100% uptime. And that's amazing. And that's because it runs inside our edge locations, you know, to which 216 of them currently and growing. Yeah, it's a good point, actually, Shane, because when we talk about edge locations that we uh, launch across the globe, and as you mentioned, over 200, um, People typically think it's uh, our CloudFront, our, our, our CDN uh, service, but it's actually a range of different services and uh, that's included in most of those edge locations and uh, Route 53 is actually one of them as well. And so, Shane, the, uh, Route 53 does have many other features, uh, as I mentioned, beyond just providing DNS uh, services. So it also has the ability to provide IP addresses and route traffic based on certain variables of the end user. So let me explain. So, for example, we have things like latency-based routing capability in Route 53. And essentially, this works by routing your customers to the AWS endpoints. So, for example, EC2 instances, load balances, um, and other uh, endpoints in a particular region that provides the fastest experience based on the actual performance measurements of the different AWS regions where your application is running. So what I mean by this is you could have your application deployed to multiple AWS regions and leverage uh, Route 53 to direct an individual end user to the most optimal region based on their location and based on the latency measurements that Route 53 has calculated for that uh, end user. So that really translates to a much more optimal end user experience regardless of where they are in the world. Uh, Route 53 also has things like GeoDNS. So this is essentially where it can route end users to a particular endpoint that you specify based on an end user's geographic location. So a really good way of perhaps restricting access to certain users who might be in specific uh, areas around the globe, or maybe you just want to redirect users in one country or one region to a particular customized uh, uh, origin or endpoint in, a, in one region compared to another other set of users somewhere else in the world, um, you want to direct them to a different uh, uh, endpoint or origin, whilst you're still able to use the same DNS name across the board for all of them. So it's a really good way to do that uh, geo-based uh, DNS. We also have uh, features like DNS failover, where you can actually use DNS to be doing health checks against your origins or your end uh, your endpoints. And so what would actually happen is if DNS does detect that a particular endpoint is not available through the health check, it will automatically route your uh, end users and your website visitors to an alternate location to avoid site outages. And those alternate locations could be um, uh, 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 on AWS or actually could be off AWS as well, maybe other cloud providers or even on-premises systems. Um, uh, Route 53 also has Amazon uh, ELB or load balancer integration. And so that's where closely um, we'll uh, integrate with your load balancing um, uh, endpoints that you might define for your web applications around the globe. And then one other feature uh, to cover is the weighted round robin. So this is where um, Amazon Route 53 can actually route traffic based on a certain weighting um, for your DNS, uh, or sorry, for your endpoints end, end or your origin service. And so this is actually a really good way to do things like uh, blue-green uh, type uh, deployments or even 
A-B type uh, testing uh, for your web applications where you might want to route a specific percentage of users to one edge location or one end location or origin um, compared to um, another set of users you might want to route based on a weighting uh, metric. And so, for example, you might want to route 90% of traffic to one uh, location and 10% of traffic to another location. You can change those metrics as you're switching over maybe to a new application or maybe even a new location for your web uh, application. So you're not simply doing a complete switch uh, at the one time. So really a lot of different features that are available in the Route 53 and, and in the DNS service. Yeah, and look, it's clearly DNS, but so much more like, you know, those features that you just listed, that's really awesome, you know, really, really powerful. Um, but what I really like is the name of the service. And look, for those who may not know DNS, DNS runs on UDP 53 for queries and TCP 53 for replication between DNS servers, so those name servers. I think it's a pretty cool name. But secondly, like most things in AWS, it's a pragmatic nature. Um, you know, when I first started using Route 53, I was leveraging AWS tools for Windows PowerShell. At that stage, I didn't have a static IP address at home and I was using, you know, AWS CLI with, uh, you know, all Windows tools for PowerShell to manipulate Route 53. But look, you can also use SDKs like, you know, for Python, Bodo 3 and so on. So it's something that is not only extremely reliable, Route 53, 100% uptime, but it forms a foundation for services such as auto-scaling. Its pragmatic nature makes it a really solid go-to service. Awesome. All right, Dean. So look, we've been able to resolve that domain, amazon.com, to an IP address. But now what, you know? Well, we now need to make that HTTP request to the IP address being returned back. Now, this HTTP request in its most simplistic form will be served by a web server directly. So this could be something like, you know, Apache, IS, Nginx, etc. But it's 2020 and the internet is a scary place. Not only is it scary, end users' demands have changed to what they were 10 to 20 years ago. So not only do we require and expect security, but we also expect performance. And in many cases, speed may be the difference between end users or customers using your website versus a competitors. So how do you increase the performance of your website, Dean? Well, Shane, performance does really take on many dimensions. Uh, you know, you could look at performance in terms of uh, the speed to serve content to your end users. And so typically you'd be looking at things like uh, caching, like you do in databases, where you can offload the delivery of certain content from, from another service, a caching service, rather than having to go to the origin, like your database or your origin service in the, in the case of web applications. And this also allows you to provide distributed reads where you could have multiple caching um, uh, servers, so for example, multiple read replicas in the case of databases or multiple CDN um, locations to actually distribute the static content uh, to your end users, therefore being able to evenly, or not evenly, but just distribute your, um, your read access uh, across multiple um, uh, services rather than using the uh, origin or the endpoint. Yeah, look, that's something we've covered in previous Tech Chat episodes. So I mean, what Dean's talking about here is, you know, database sharding or read replicas or maybe even in-memory caches such as Redis or Memcached. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, those are more back-end and the request has uh, hit your origin, your actual servers. Um, there, are, there are actual uh, means you can take to prevent the load even arriving on your servers uh, themselves. So this also uh, offloads a lot of that read type of access from your, 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 uh, your database servers. Yeah. 
And look, the biggest lever that one can pull here is by using a CDN or content delivery network. So when we talk through the news, we often talk about CloudFront Pops because we're adding them at a tremendous rate and it's really about getting bits to end users quicker than having to fetch them from an origin. Now, that was a pretty off-the-cusp description of a CDN, but officially speaking, for those who are not familiar or have never used a CDN, a CDN is a content delivery network. It's a geographically distributed network of proxy servers Maybe, you know, it was one of the ones Dean built, uh, you know, 10 years ago. But look, the goal here, <laughs> they're offline, damn. Okay. The goal is to provide high availability and performance by distributing a service spatially relative to end users. So we want to get this service as close to end users as possible. CDNs came into existence in the late 90s as a means for alleviating the performance bottlenecks of the internet. Since then, CDNs have grown to serve a large portion of the internet content today. So it could be including web objects, you know, text, graphics, scripts, etc., as well as downloadable objects, so media, software, and so on. It's also, you know, deals with live streaming, media on demand, and social media sites. Yeah, Shane, I'm actually showing my age here, but uh, I, I remember when I was a Linux geek, I was actually working for a company as a trainer. And I used to take uh, extreme joy in um, actually showing uh, my students how um, other, let's say, other OS vendors um, were using Linux for their web servers. And, and what I would actually do is uh, uh, basically do a request for the HTTP uh, headers of that said OS vendor's website. And the actual HTTP response headers, headers would actually indicate that uh, a Linux operating system, and typically at that time would be something like Apache uh, web server, would actually be um, uh, the, the front end, essentially, for that other OS vendor's uh, websites. Um, and actually what it turns out is it's actually the CDNs, the CDN providers that were um, in, uh, providing that uh, uh, CDN service to those uh, origins um, uh, websites were actually maybe using some type of Linux slash Apache combination for the CDN uh, infrastructure that they actually uh, created. Uh, but you know, we we definitely come a long way now. Um, you know, uh, we 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 see AWS does remove a lot of that undifferentiated heavy lifting when it comes to uh, edge services like your CDN. Uh, no longer do you need to build those edge services like I did. Uh, in the world of AWS, you actually um, have a service called CloudFront, which will allow you to uh, 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 provide that CDN service. Uh, fun fact, Shane, uh, CloudFront, I believe, was launched in about 2009. You know, initially at that time, it was a CDN that would provide static content serving capability, essentially for AWS services. So for example, S3. Uh, it's definitely come a long way where you can now use CloudFront for uh, any on AWS or off AWS origin servers. Um, so whether you're running it on, on premises or in other cloud uh, environments, CloudFront is a um, truly scalable distributed uh, CDN service that you could use for your web services. Now, essentially CloudFront speeds up the distribution of your static and dynamic web content, such as your HTML, CSS, uh, JavaScript, and image files to your users. But it's interesting to note, Shane, that you can also use CloudFront even for your dynamic 
web content. And one of the benefits of doing that is when your end users are accessing your web application through a CloudFront pop, one of them uh, 200 plus around the globe, uh, you can then leverage the AWS back network backbone from that edge location back to the region where your origins are actually residing. And so what that actually means is you're reducing the latency or the round trip time to access even your dynamic content uh, by leveraging the AWS backbone rather than uh, 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 transferring over the general internet. Now, CloudFront really does speed up the distribution of your static and dynamic web content. And a key one to remember there, Shane, is it is, can be used for that dynamic web content. Yeah, totally. You know, proxy it through, back straight through to the origin. Like you said, you know, no longer having to go over the public internet using the AWS private network. Now, I remember when, uh, you know, I started on this show, we had some 50-ish edge locations. You know, I was amazed when we hit 100 and now we're at 216. So look, I've been at Amazon, you know, relative to most, you know, quite a long time. But as a longtime Amazonian pushing close to 10 years, Dean, do you remember how many we had when you started? <laughs> this is really testing me. I thought I did some research already that uh, I know it was launched in 2009. Um, I'm not quite sure exactly how many were launched on that at that time. Uh, do you have the answer, Shane? I don't. But look, as part of a team in my new role and in part of this function, I can tell you whilst 216 may sound like a lot, a watch is space as we will continue to roll out many more edge locations to parts of the world where we either don't have presence in or we will continue to add capacity to CloudFront in countries to which we already have presence. Now, getting back on topic here, how does CloudFront actually work? So look, after you configure CloudFront to deliver your content by creating a distribution, which is really simple. Um, you know, that's the first step that you need to do. And creating this distribution can be done, you know, via CFN, um, you know, CloudFormation, CLI, APIs, or in the console. And this distribution will be configured to access your origin, which could be an EC2 instance, a load balancer, or as Dean mentioned, you know, any other publicly accessible HTTP endpoints. So it doesn't need to reside within AWS. Once your distribution is created and up and running, you need to modify your application to leverage CloudFront. Depending on how you've architected your application, this may be as simple as modifying an include file, or maybe even you know your application may use relative paths. But either way, your application will need to reference the URL of the distribution in which was created by CloudFront when you created the distribution. So this may look something like you know HTTPS uh, a GUID.CloudFront.net, unless you opt for a custom domain name. So you know like as an example, I'm just looking at one here. You know D one 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 A B C D E F eight.cloudfront.net. Actually, listeners, look, if you're playing along at home and listening about Route 53, you could even use a CNAME alias, you know, cdn.yourdomain.xyz to your CloudFront distribution. You know, you could give it that friendly name rather than having to use, you know, the CloudFront distribution, which, uh, you know, whilst is DNS-based, a fully qualified domain name, is somewhat, you know, GUID-based uh, given that it is generated. Yeah, it comes, comes back to the... Uh... Uh, humans are able to re uh, to remember names and words better than they are numbers, right? So being able to have that uh, more user-friendly C name, um, which is an alias to the CloudFront uh, distribution, does just 
definitely make it a lot easier for users to manually plug in um, the uh, destination they want to access from their web um, client. Um, so if we get back to when a user requests their static content, such as uh, images, CSS files, JavaScript, uh, uh, and, and etc. So, you know, for example, Shane, going back to your uh, question about uh, what happens in a browser when a user hits enter after putting a name. Um, so once the browser has connected to uh, the, uh, the web uh, server, um, that web page that it's uh, accessing is made up of many different uh, objects or components. And part of those objects or components could be uh, the static uh, files or static content like images, JavaScript, etc. And so what you could actually do is for a lot of that static content, you can indicate to your web application that you're going to serve it out using a CloudFront pop or CloudFront distribution. And so what will actually happen is your DNS, which we just spoke about, will actually route requests for those static content, the, the images and the JavaScript um, components of that uh, web page, um, to the CloudFront pop. And so what will then happen is a CloudFront edge location that can best serve um, the end user request. So that's typically the nearest CloudFront uh, pop in terms of latency. Um, that will then route the request to the uh, uh, edge location and that edge location will provide that static uh, content. And so what's going to happen here is that an A record um, will be returned, will be different uh, depending on your uh, location. And so in the uh, uh, edge location or the pop, CloudFront checks its cache uh, for the requested files. So this is where the caching of uh, static content can come in. Uh, also, maybe some short-term uh, dynamic content that you might want to cache as well. So things like uh, search queries and so on, uh, commonly, uh, commonly um, used search queries. Um, so if the files are in the cache, uh, CloudFront will return them to the user. So it doesn't need to actually go to the origin. Now, if the files are not in the cache, it will actually do the following. It will compare the requests with the specifications in your distribution, your configuration, and then it will forward the request for the files to your origin server for the corresponding file type. So for example, uh, to your Amazon S3 bucket for image files and for your HTTP server for maybe HTML or, HTML or dynamic uh, uh, files and content as well. Now the origin servers, maybe S3 or your EC2 instance, will uh, send the files back to the edge location. And as soon as the first byte arrives um, from the origin, CloudFront will begin forwarding those files and that content to the end user. Uh, CloudFront will then also add the files to its cache um, uh, in the edge location so that the next time that particular file or um, object is accessed, uh, that it can be retrieved from the local cache rather than going back to, uh, back to the origin. Yeah, and look, if we go back to the performance analogy, I'm recording this in Melbourne, Australia, and the AWS region in country is AP Southeast 2, which is Sydney, but there is an edge location some 30 kilometers or 20 miles away. What this means for me is much of the content I consume, probably more like my kids consume, is being served by AWS in region and it's coming from a Melbourne edge location and this speaks to the performance for video streaming services, but not only for myself as an end user, but for the operators of the service. What CloudFront is doing is taking the load off the origin. In almost all cases, you know, this is going to mean less compute is required to serve a specific user base. You know, your fleet of compute may not need to auto scale out or add more containers and so on. But there are other benefits amongst this, which makes CloudFront an almost a no-brainer. I just spoke, Dean, about reducing the load on compute resources. But what about data transit costs? Compute is one vector or dimension we can talk about. But whilst in almost all cases, 
you know, that's going to reduce cost by reducing your compute requirements. This actually does reduce cost. Yeah, exactly. So in addition to be, being able to reduce your compute costs um, by not having to have higher spec or um, higher scaling uh, compute uh, services at your origin, uh, CloudFront is going to actually help reduce your uh, data transfer uh, costs as well out of AWS to the end users. As most of our listeners will um, uh, understand, that uh, for data transfer for AWS, we uh, typically only will charge um, based on outgoing or egress um, uh, data. Um, so rather than having to have all your egress data, the, the content you're serving coming out directly of an AWS region, having it been served from a specific set of edge locations allows you to significantly reduce your cost because serving content for most cases is a lot more cost efficient than uh, uh, serving it from uh, CloudFront edge locations rather than serving it directly from Origin. So uh, CloudFront is going to be closer to your end users. So you get um, uh, uh, the performance benefit, but because there's a lot less networks to traverse, um, there's that reduced data transfer that data transfer cost. Correct. So let's keep this real, Dean, and use a real life example. Okay, so let's uh, let's talk about as of this recording, which is July 2020. Um, we have one terabyte of data transfer out via CloudFront. Now, one terabyte of data transfer out is going to cost $87 US per terabyte. Whereas if your origin is in US East region, where bandwidth is quite cheap, it will cost $93 US. So it's actually 7% cheaper, but that's just US East. Uh, remember, our prices reflect the cost of doing business in region. So whilst the US has a cheap bandwidth, other parts of the world aren't as lucky. So let's say you are in a region of the world, maybe Seoul in Korea, it will actually be $128 uh, uh, egress uh, charge or data transfer charge um, or $112 US in Tokyo um, and $163 in, say, Sao Paulo, Brazil uh, region. So you can see that it'll be a lot more cost effective to serve that content using one of our CloudFront uh, edge locations um, if your edge location, sorry, if your origin is located in um, the likes of Seoul, Tokyo, and Sao Paulo. Yeah, and look, doing rough math in my head here, it's almost twice the cost of delivering content in Brazil direct from your compute resources, you know, EC2 containers and so on versus leveraging CloudFront. So even if your workload is dynamic, it should always be fronted with CloudFront. It's really one of those services that should be fronting all of your resources because it will save you money. And look, your mileage may vary, but it's going to reduce your data transfer costs. Now, it is 2020. I mentioned that before. I said the internet's a scary place and we hear about attacks on almost a daily basis. And as a developer, architect or someone in charge of your operations, you should always have a security mindset. And one way to reduce your surface attack area is to not allow your infrastructure to be directly accessible. And there are a few ways to do this. Yes, uh, Shane, we actually have an official approach to automatically update your security groups for uh, web application firewalls or WAF and CloudFront using Lambda. We actually publish a list of CEDA ranges, so the ranges of uh, um, IP addresses uh, for CloudFront um, for, or, or actually for, for all of our services. Yeah, and look, looking outside the lens of this show here, that list is actually handy for a lot of other things here. But look, I digress, Dean. I'll let you continue. Yeah, so the gist of this is this approach is there is an SNS topic for this list. Uh, we, being AWS, will publish a message to this topic and you get updated um, of any changes that you make. 
uh, that we make to the IP address ranges. And what you can actually do is fire off a Lambda function to update the security group on the ALB or the application load balancer to only allow traffic from those specific ranges. Now, the code to actually do this is online and you can find it in our security blog by searching for how to automatically update your security groups for Amazon CloudFront and AWS WAF by using AWS Lambda. Yeah, that's a good article. Now, I know you're famous for running Black Belt Sessions, Dean, but here is my tips to our listeners. So we're a platform of Lego blocks and there are many ways to address these problems. And one of my favorite services in AWS is our ALB or our application load balancer. Now, remember, it runs at layer seven of the OSI model. And because it runs at layer seven, it's able to inspect HTTP headers. You know, we, we cover this with uh, the ability to do advanced request routing on our ALBs. Now, on past shows, we've explored the expression engine of the ALB. It's really quite powerful, but because it can make decisions on HTTP headers, what we can do is get CloudFront to inject a HTTP header and then validate it on the ALB. So CloudFront has the option to inject a header with a fixed value before calling the origin. So this header can be anything. You know, you typically you want to prefix it with X hyphen is recommended. And look, this makes it easy, for example, to inject a header with, you know, you like a token, you know, X hyphen my token could be, you know, A1, B2, C3, D4, etc. You can put whatever you want here. You can set the header in CloudFront and then put a check in the target group routing rule on the application load balancer. So what you're doing, you're matching on both the host name and the presence of the header value. And like that, you know, there, there are two approaches that we've just described and how you can prevent end users directly accessing the origin. Just to be clear with the approach I just described, what's happening here, CloudFront's injecting a header and then the application load balancer is validating that the request includes this header. If it doesn't uh, contain this header, it's going to, you know, you could provide them a 403 or you could do whatever you want. Like, you know, it's an expression engine here. You know, if this, then do that. You know, if it doesn't contain it, send them elsewhere, you know, display a, a message here. Yeah, Shane, it's a good example of a kind of defense in depth type strategy when it comes to restricting access to your origins where, you know, using um, security groups, as we mentioned before, where we can, we publish the range of CloudFront uh, POP um, IP, uh, IP ranges, um, you can actually you embed those into your security groups for your uh, origin or even on your application load balancer to then restrict the IP addresses uh, accessing your origin only to CloudFront. So that essentially... From a networking perspective, will uh, enforce uh, connectivity always through CloudFront. But there are ways to also circumvent that as well. So by then introducing a layer seven security control by uh, looking at these uh, um, this particular header, where uh, CloudFront will inject that header before then connecting to the origin. The origin will then verify that that uh, particular token has been inserted that only CloudFront knows about, and therefore it knows that the connection is coming from CloudFront rather than direct um, across uh, from a end user or a malicious user. Exactly, defense in depth. And look, you may be listening thinking that's all there is to a CDN. You know, its job is to serve content to end users from the edge. And you would be right, but CloudFront is a lot more. And for those who've been living and breathing AWS for some time, you would be well aware of Lambda. You know, I think we've just mentioned it probably 10 times already in this show, which is our event-driven serverless compute platform that lets you run code without provisioning or managing servers. You know, it's mature and has been around for now six years and is used by almost all AWS customers. 
Even if it's not used to drive a website, it's often referred to as glue. So back to CloudFront and the context of Lambda. Dean, what do they have to do with each other? That's a really good question uh, there, Shane. And, and the answer really is it's got a lot to do with each other. We have a uh, service and feature called uh, Lambda at Edge. It's actually an extension of AWS Lambda, and it lets you execute functions that customize the content that CloudFront delivers. So you can actually author uh, Node.js JS or Python functions and then execute them in our edge locations that are closer to the viewer. The same benefits of Lambda apply with Lambda at Edge. It scales automatically from a few requests per day to thousands per second. Uh, processing requests at AWS locations closer to the viewer instead of on origin servers significantly reduces latency and improves the user experience. So when you associate a CloudFront distribution with a Lambda at Edge function, CloudFront intercepts requests and responses at CloudFront Edge locations. You can execute Lambda functions when the following event occurs. Uh, when CloudFront receives a request from a viewer, otherwise known as a viewer request, before CloudFront forwards a request to the origin or an origin request, when CloudFront receives a response from the origin or an origin response, and then also before CloudFront returns the response to the viewer, which is known as the viewer response. Yeah, and look, listeners may be asking, why on earth do I need compute to deliver my images or CSS or JavaScript? Yeah, look, uh, I don't need to tell you, especially with your new role, but um, there are many uses for Lambda at Edge processing. So let's maybe use some examples. So perhaps you want to inspect cookies and rewrite URLs so that users see different versions of a site, maybe for A-B testing. Or perhaps uh, you want CloudFront return different objects to viewers based on the device they're using by checking the user agent header which includes information about the devices. So for example, CloudFront can return different images based on the screen size of the device. Similarly, the function could consider the value of the referrer header and cause CloudFront to return the images to bots that have the lowest available resolution. Or you could check cookies for other criteria, for example, on a retail website that sells clothing. If you use cookies to indicate which color a user chose for a jacket, a Lambda function can change the request so that CloudFront returns the image of a jacket in the selected color. Uh, maybe even a Lambda function can generate HTTP responses when CloudFront viewer request or origin request events occur. Yeah, look, I described Lambda as glue earlier. And if you look Add it through the context, it's allowing you to tweak and modify your content at the edge. Given its ability to run at viewer or origin runtime, it's very flexible. And as I keep saying, it's just another lever or tool that you can use when architecting your solution to be as performant, cost-effective, secure as possible. Yeah, that's not a plug for well-architected there, is it, Jane? I guess you could say well-architected, but the reality is we want all of our customers to build secure, high-performing, resilient, and cost-effective workloads on AWS. And I often say to customers, whilst well-architected may be a phrase coined by AWS, if you sit down and read the well-architected papers, which are you know, really a good read, there are a lot of common sense that are applicable to AWS and IT in general. So Dean, I'm in Australia. I was going to say you're in Singapore, but you're also in Australia. We're in different parts at the Normally moment. Normally, I'm in Singapore, yeah. Okay, look, we're dealing with customers globally, and I often have conversations with customers about providing global solutions. Rather than punching out stacks in different AWS regions, how can they provide a single endpoint in a global manner? 
So Shane, it's actually becoming an ever-increasing and common problem to solve. Uh, sure, you can instantiate resources in different AWS regions, and maybe that's the right reason for regulatory reasons such as GDPR, but doing so can add complexity and even add more costs. Um, from a complexity angle, for example, you have single sources of truth. How do you reconcile multiple relational databases? Uh, you have additional overhead of managing more systems in more regions. And as I mentioned before, cloud is a pay-to-go model, so there is that added cost. Uh, like with many new services and features that we release, in late 2018, we released a new service that, depending on the vertical in which you work in, may uh, or may May, you may not be from, that familiar with, and that is AWS Global Accelerator. Yeah, and look, it's part of our Edge portfolio as it's a service that improves the availability and performance of your applications with local or global users. And what it does, it provides you a set of static IP addresses that act as a fixed entry point to your application endpoints in a single or multiple AWS regions, such as load balancers or EC2 instances. So if we're following along at home, after DNS resolves your application, it's going to resolve it to an IP address. And rather than, you know, to an IP address of an ALB, NLB, EC2, and so on, with Global Accelerator, we're going to have this resolved to a set of static IP addresses that we provide. Now, though this really doesn't describe in detail what Global Accelerator does. Yeah, so we operate a large network at AWS. It spans the globe, and Global Accelerator uses this global network to optimize the path from your users to your applications, improving the performance of your traffic by as much as 60%. Now, before we get into the nuts and bolts on how this service works, why use it? Now, there's really three main benefits of uh, the Global Accelerator. To improve global application availability, so this service will continually monitor the health of your application endpoints, such as your network load balances, your application load balances, EC2 instances, uh, and so on. And it instantly reacts to changes in their health or configuration. AWS Global Accelerator will then redirect user traffic to healthy endpoints that deliver the best performance and availability to your users. Yeah, and I think the key word you just mentioned there is instantly. Now, I like to think of it as a load balancer for AWS regions. And look, whilst you know you can use Route 53 with health checks, it's not going to be instant and seamless for your end users. You know, this this failover is going to be dict dictated by the TTL, the time to live in your SOA. Um, you know, maybe ISPs etc. may not adhere to caching etc. defined in the TTL. This is going to be like flicking a switch. You know, it's just going to be just like a load balancer. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you've got so many caching uh, uh, tiers to deal with uh, when it comes to DNS that we spoke about before. Using the global accelerator is going to address some of those caching challenges when you do make those uh, uh, changes. Um, and so the second uh, uh, benefit, uh, Shane, is... Um, the speed, um, you know, as the name implied, you can accelerate your global applications. So as mentioned, we, we run our own global network. And so Global Accelerator optimizes the network path, taking advantage of the vast congestion-free AWS global network. Regardless of where your users are located, Global Accelerator intelligently routes traffic to the endpoint that provides the best application performance. Yeah, it's like uh, taking a tollway, you know, you're going to you know, get that congestion free run. So there is a speed test on the product page, but if you think about it, you know, with your ISP, there are many hops in that, you know, if you were to perform a trace route or a path ping to a resource. With Global Accelerator, you know, the path is vastly reduced. 
Yeah, exactly, Shane. And and comes to the third benefit of uh, uh, global accelerators, um, and that's static IP addresses, making it very easy to move endpoints between availability zones or AWS regions without needing to update your DNS configuration or change client-facing applications. Uh, you can use static IP addresses from the Amazon IP address pool, or you can actually even bring your own IP addresses uh, to AWS Global Accelerator. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. You know, you might have, you know, uh, slash 24 or something like that that you want to bring across. But look, depending on your customers, often changing IPs is a really big deal. You know, perhaps you're dealing with a financial institution or those that can't use DNS endpoints. You know, they they need statically bound endpoints. And this can aid, you know, be that extra tool or lever for those tricky situations. You know, these benefits can translate into so many use cases from gaming and media, which can often be very latency sensitive. It could be part of your DR and BCP practices. See episode 67 for more details on DR and BCP. And so, Shane, given it's a shim between regions, it could be used for A-B testing. Uh, It gives you a lot of flexibility. You can dial traffic up or down for a specific AWS region by configuring a traffic dial percentage for your endpoint groups. This is especially useful for testing performance and releasing updates with low friction. It does this by using weights so you can control the proportion of traffic directed to each endpoint within within an endpoint group by assigning weights across the endpoints. Yeah, and a few things to know about Global Accelerator. So it supports both UDP and TCP protocols. And it does have CloudFormation support, which is often, you know, a question lots of customers or people who, you know, send emails through to Chat at amazon.com often ask. It's pretty simple to get started, very much like creating an ELB, NLB, ALB. You define the Global Accelerator, then you add endpoints to it. This is going to accelerate your application like CloudFront or caching tiers like Redis and Memcached. But I want to be clear, this is not a replacement for any of these products. It accelerates it in another way. Uh, So keen-eyed listeners, uh, you probably noticed you can now procure Global Accelerator in a one-click manner for your application load balancer. So from July 20th, with just a single click in the AWS Management Console, uh, when you create a load balance in the console, you can select a checkbox to enable Global Accelerator as an add-on service. Uh, Behind the scenes, Elastic Load Balancing and Global Accelerator work together to set up an accelerator in your account and put it in front of your load balancer. After you create your load balancer, choose the integrated services tab to see the static IP addresses and DNS name that you can use to start routing user traffic to the load balancer over the AWS global network. Depending on when where your end users are and use cases, this may accelerate your traffic as much as 60%. Uh, speaking of percentages, there is a tool at speedtest.globalaccelerator.aws that will allow you to test Global Accelerator with various HTTP payloads and sizes to give you a real-world understanding of the performance gains one can expect. Yeah, look, check this out. Um, And it's really going to depend a lot on your use case and where your end users are located in regards to the performance gains. But it's quite simple. Look, Global Accelerator makes use of a global backbone. It's uncongested. And for applications of a global nature, there can be significant gains to be had. But again, like we say lots, your mileage may vary, so please test accordingly. Dean, whilst we've covered much of the application slash functional layer that is our edge services, there is still plenty to talk about. You know, there's a lot more magic that happens in our edge, particularly in the security space. And, you know, case in point, you know, how do we protect users of our platform? 
well, security is our number one priority, so how do we? That's going to have to be an open-ended question because we are out of time. You know, Hopefully, the magic of editing is going to get this under one hour, and it's going to have to be something we'll need to put in the backlog. So in recapping today's show, we sailed to the edge and hopefully demystified many of the core concepts that occur before those requests land on your resources. We started the show setting down a foundation of DNS why it's important, why it's oh so important before talking about Route 53, which is our highly available and scalable domain name service. It's a full feature DNS service that has APIs, SDKs, and is CLI driven. It's just awesome. Uh, we then introduced the concept of content delivery networks or CDNs. Uh, I would argue in 2020, they are equally as important. Uh, we spoke about Amazon CloudFront, which speeds up the distribution of your static and dynamic web content. Uh, we deliver this content through a worldwide network of data centers called Edge Locations. CloudFront allows you to run Lambda functions at the edge, or otherwise known as Lambda at the edge, which is an extension of Lambda that will let you execute functions that customize the content that CloudFront delivers. Yeah, so many uses for Lander at Edge. Before closing out the show with Global Accelerator, which is a service that improves the availability and performance of your applications with local or global users. It provides static IP addresses that act as a fixed entry point to your application endpoint in single or multiple AWS regions. Dean, been an absolute pleasure to have you back on Tech Chat today. Come back soon. Absolutely, Shane. I'll make sure that it's not as uh, long a time between, uh, between podcasts. I'm going to have to hold you to that, Dean. So listeners, keep us honest. Feedback is always welcome and you know it helps drive the direction of this show. So send us a message, awstechchat at amazon.com. Join us again in our next episode in which we'll be back with a round of updates that occurred in the last month. But until next time, bye for now. Signing off, we really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting awstechchat.com.